When I was growing up, I went to several different schools, so we moved around a lot, and so the second, fourth, and sixth grade, I went to all different schools. Now, the weird part of the whole thing is that in the second, fourth, and sixth grade, even though I was in a different school, my teacher's name was Mrs. Roach. Different people all had the same name, Mrs. Roach. It's always kind of bugged me a little bit, but um, my sixth grade Mrs. Roach uh, she, on the first day of school, when she handed out the textbooks, she handed us our math book, and then she said to all of us to get in line, to all stand up, get in a line, and then um, to bring our textbook to the front. And she pulled out the biggest stapler I had ever seen in my life. And she proceeded to staple the last 50 pages of our math book completely shut. And so I was curious as to why, and as I was waiting in line, I was asking some of my friends in class, and they were curious as to why, and nobody had the guts to ask. I mean, we, we, it was a Catholic school, and so we figured, you ask, you know, if she's not in the mood to answer questions, you could personally get stapled, uh, just based on how things went back then. So, nonetheless, someone finally musters up the courage to ask her and says, uh, Mrs. Roach, why are you stapling the last 50 pages of our book shut? And she says, um, that's because all of the answers are in the back of the book. And so I'm stapling it shut so that you can't find out what the answers are and so that you're going to have to actually learn this material. Now, here's the interesting part is that she was right. And also, thank God for staple removers. That's how I passed the sixth grade. But, you know, I became a Christian. And you know what I found to be very interesting is that she was not only right when it came to our math book. She was also right when it came to the Bible, that all of the answers are in the back of the book. All the answers to the big questions that we ask about life, to the future, what's going to take place, how's it all going to work out, how's everything going to pan out, and how's everything supposed to fit. All of that stuff is found at the end of the book in the book called Revelation. Now, here's the thing that many people think. Many people tend to think that God has stapled the book of Revelation shut so that we can't know what it says, so that we don't know what it means, so that we don't know exactly what it is that God's going to do in the future and what it is that's going to take place. And what I want to tell you is that it's just the opposite. Because while many people think that the book of Revelation is stapled shut, I want to tell you that it's just the opposite. You see, the book of Revelation, the word Revelation means simply this, to reveal or to unveil. You see, you don't call a book to reveal or to unveil if you're going to seal it shut. You know, you'd call it sealed, closed, do not open. You'd call it something else, but you wouldn't call it revealed. You wouldn't call it unveiled. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's God revealing to us what he's going to do in the future. Now, I have to tell you, and you probably know this to be true, that people are obsessed with the future. There seems to be a new end-of-the-world TV program. I woke up um, just the other night. It was about, I think, Wednesday night. I woke up at like 2 in the morning. I couldn't fall back asleep. And so as I woke up, I was slipping through the channels. And, you know, there's all like the usual infomercials on. But then there's like, I'm, I'm looking through, you know, my TiVo, the, the guide. And as I'm looking through, it's like Mysteries of the Apocalypse, like another new uh, end-of-the-world program. And it's like, it seems like, you know, every week there's a new end of the world program. There's every month new books being released on the end of the world. And then, of course, there's always some wacko predicting the end of the world every year, it seems like, you know, that gets some kind of popularity. And so here's what I want to tell you. And I think this is really important as we get started in this new series, as we get started in this book. 
And it's simply this, and you're going to hear me say this over and over and over again. You're going to get sick of it, but now it's going to be like, I didn't know that. But here's what it is. And that is just that Revelation is not a difficult book to understand. Because it's the only book in the Bible that comes to us with its own divine outline. That's found in chapter 1, verse 19. If you have your notes, you can see it. If you have your Bible, I hope you'd open to Revelation 1 and take a look at it. But here's what it says. In Revelation 1.19, it says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Three things. The things that you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. That gives us the outline for the entire book of Revelation. The thing, what you have seen, what we're going to look at this week and next week, it is chapter 1. The things that John has seen, he's going to see the risen, glorified Jesus. That's what he's going to see. But then he says, the things that are. The things that are, yes, the church. That's Revelation chapters 2 and 3, as Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. And then, the things that will take place after these things. After these things, the Greek word is meta-tauta. Now, this is important because it kind of tips us off. as said, we know that we're entering that phase because in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, after these things, meta tauda. John hears this voice that says, come up here. And John is taken up to heaven in what is a, a picture for us of the rapture of the church. That is what the Bible talks about of when Jesus comes to the point and just simply not his second coming, but he comes to take the church off the earth so that then he can deal with planet earth in the way that he needs to. That's why you see all those bumper stickers, you see those bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. You ever see those? My favorite sticker is the one that says, hey, in case of rapture, can I have your car? Uh, that's, I like that one better. But anyway, the point is this, is that so what happens is, this after these things is where we see, find chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation. Now, John explains to us the heavenly scene in chapters 4 and 5. And then from chapters 6 through 18, he explains to us what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. Where God is pouring his wrath out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And at the same time, God is dealing with Israel in a specific way. That's why the church gets removed. God's now dealt with the church. The church comes, is, is taken up to heaven. God now is dealing with Israel in particular. And now they get to the point where we see this incredible type of revival breakout. And many in Israel come to know the Lord. In chapter 19, Jesus returns. In an incredible way, and we'll talk about that a little bit more even in, in this message. But Jesus comes back, and the cool thing is, according to the Bible, He comes back with all of us. It says that He comes back with all the saints, every believer, on, on white horses. Now you say, I don't know how to ride a horse. Well, here's what I know according to the Bible. You will learn. So you say, I'm going to be a horse-riding fool. That all of us, we're going to be riding horses. We're going to be coming back with Him. Revelation chapter 20 then is this period of time that's called the millennium, where it's this time where Jesus is ruling and reigning throughout the entire earth, and the earth has returned to an Eden-like state. Revelation 21 and 22 is about God creating a new heavens and a new earth. You see, but here's the most important thing for us to understand, is that Revelation is not about the revealing of the Antichrist. It's not about the revealing of judgment. It's not about the revealing of 666, what's the number of the beast, and all that kind of stuff. It's not about the revelation of wrath. It's not about the revelation of a new heavens and a new earth. Listen, it's called the revelation 
of Jesus Christ, because the whole book, the point of the book is to give us an understanding of how it is that Jesus is going to be revealed in his second coming. And that is something that all of us should be interested in. And that's why we're starting this series that we're calling It's the End of the World as We Know It, because as we get through this book of Revelation, we're going to see that the world is very, very different at the end of this book than it is at the beginning. And you see, what this book reveals to us is what the scene will be like and what will be the things that happen that bring about the return of Jesus. Now, here's what we have to be aware of. And that is we're going to see a very different picture of Jesus than we saw in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we saw a picture of Jesus that was, as John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as he would say in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. But what we're going to see is a different side of Jesus, not the Lamb of God who came to die for our sins in, in the Gospels. In Revelation, he's the lion. He's not the lamb, he's the lion who's coming to devour his enemies and reign as a king. In fact, in chapter 19, what we, we see this picture, and it, John is so picturesque to explain to us what happens. And he says that he sees Jesus returning on this horse and that his, he has this garment that's covered in blood. He's got a sword that's coming out of his mouth. And I'm telling you, it's not a picture of someone who's, will, who's willing to die for, for our sins. He's already done that. But instead what we have is a picture of someone who's now going to conquer and defeat his enemies. And he's covered in blood. He's got the sword. I mean, he's like a cross between William Wallace from Gladiator and Maximus, uh, or, uh, and Maximus from Gladiator and William Wallace from Braveheart. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a very different side of Jesus that we're going to see. Now, I've taught this, I've taught the book of Revelation twice at the college level and here, every time I make this, every time I've made this statement when I've taught at the college level, this is, the, the, the students are like gasping, like, no, that can't be true. But I'm gonna say it again here because I think it's an important thing to say. Is that in the book of Revelation, what I'm gonna share with you is nothing new. As we read the book of Revelation, there's nothing new in this book. Now you say, how can that, how can that be true? I mean, there's so much new, there's so much different. No, in fact, what I wanna tell you is this is that there's nothing that's in the book of Revelation that hasn't already been revealed to us in the Old Testament scriptures through the Old Testament prophets. You say, well, how can that be the case? You see, John was not giving us, John the writer, John the apostle, was not giving us some brand new theology. Instead, what God was doing when he gave him the revelation was he simply allowed him to put all of the pieces together and to put it in chronological order. Because that was part of what would happen is the Old Testament prophets got a vision of the future, but they didn't actually fully comprehend how it was all going to play out and in what order it was going to transpire. What Revelation gives us is simply the sequence of events as to when these things are going to take place. But see, even though the book of Revelation is built on the theology of the Old Testament, and yet it speaks of the future, I believe it is completely relevant to our present. In fact, the, in the opening verses, we're going to cover the first eight verses this morning. I believe that we're going to see three specific ways that this book relates to us and to the situation that you and I are in. So we're going to start in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. 
Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, what's the first thing that we see as we look through this? How, how do we see this book relate to us specifically in the situation that we're in? Listen, what is God revealing? God is revealing the path to blessing. He's revealing the path to blessing. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, Revelation is so unique because it's the only book of the Bible that actually gives a blessing just for reading it. Now, in fact, there's three blessings that are given. There's the blessing to the one who reads it. That's me. I'm the one now reading it to you. So there's a blessing for me. There's also a blessing to the one who hears it. And that would be you because you're hearing. Now, you have to understand is that in, in the culture in which John was writing, not everybody didn't have a copy of the Bible. The only person who would have a copy would be the pastor, would be the teacher. And so he would stand and read it. He would open up the scroll and, and begin to read the text. And then so there was a blessing to the one who read it. There's a blessing to the one who heard it. But then he says this, there's also a blessing to the one who does it. The one who keeps, the one who does the words that are written. That is the one who obeys. And throughout the Bible, there's this understanding, there's this underlying principle. And that is that we can hear it and we can know it. But the blessing really comes in our lives when we do what's said. And we apply it to our lives. Jesus would say it this way in the Gospel of John. He would say, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It's just a universal truth. You know, when we do what it is that we know, we're blessed. When we, when we learn what it is that we need to know and then put it into practice, that's when we're blessed. Now, here's the thing. I mean, I, I've been trying to eat healthy and exercise and all that for the last several months. And, and here's the thing that I, that I learned um, is that I didn't actually gain any new information from the time that I was like, you know, eating Twinkies for breakfast to where I just switched and said, well, I'll eat a banana. At least it's still yellow. You know, I mean, you know, there's nothing new. There was no new information that I learned. Right. Like if you talk to someone, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, losing weight. And if you tell them, like, you know what, if you stop drinking Coke, chocolate shakes and hostess cupcakes, that will help you. I, there's nobody that's going to say, are you kidding this is brand new information to me. Hold on. I need to, I need to write this down. So maybe some of you here are like, I'm going to put this in the back of my notes. I had no idea. I figured that the cupcakes were making me, I mean, it has like a sleek kind of look. I thought they were making me better. You know, I thought they were making me healthier. No, listen, we all knew that. And so the question is, it had no, I mean, it really didn't matter if we knew it. What really mattered was if we did it. And that's why the, ble the greatest blessing is always not just when I know it, but when I'll actually put it into practice. You see, but there is a blessing of finding out. And there is, there is a great blessing that comes from learning and that comes from growing. Because we can't actually do something until we know it. And that's why there is a blessing in the book of Revelation just by reading it, just by hearing it. Because we're going to have an understanding of something that maybe we didn't have before. And that's why John said that you're blessed because you're going to learn the things that must shortly take place. And that's the phrase that he uses in verse 3, the things that must shortly take place. Because if you don't know what Revelation has to say, it's going to be very difficult for each of us to interpret and understand the times in which we're living. Now you might think, hold on, shortly take place? Wasn't this written like 2,000 years ago or something? 
And we're going to get into like the writer and all that next time. But um, you say, well, if it was written 2000 years ago, I mean, how could this say shortly? I mean, shouldn't it be like it's going to happen like in a while, but shortly take place? How, how does that work? Now, the Greek word for shortly, and this is, I'm going to get a little technical, but this is an important thing to note. The Greek word is enteki. It's actually two words, en, uh, which means in, uh, in, and then techie, uh, t-a-c-h-e-i. It's where we get our English word tachometer. A tachometer is, if you know stuff about cars, is, what, uh, is how we measure RPMs. And so I want you to think about this. The idea is, is that once something gets started, it starts happening in rapid succession. And that's the idea. Once things start revving up and start cooking, it's going to start happening in rapid succession. So the idea is, once you start seeing the signs, once you start understanding what's happening in the world, what you're going to realize is that this is going to start happening in rapid succession. Um, Today's a very special day for me, personally. My wife and I are celebrating 12 years of marriage, so we're very excited about that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, The dirty dozen, as I like to call it. Uh, so we've decided to keep going. We're going for 13 next year. And, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing that you would have known if you were, if you, if you had known us, you know, more than 12, 13 years ago. Um, when we decided to get married, we were engaged for about 13, 14 months. Um, and you know, it's like I asked Carrie to marry me and she, for whatever reason, you know, medication or whatever said yes. Um, now what happens is this, is that I, she said yes. And that was maybe one sign that we were going to get married. But then nothing happened for a while. But you know what was interesting is that as the day got closer, all of the signs that we were getting married would begin to intensify. You see, rings would be purchased. Dresses would be picked out. Tuxes would be uh, fitted. Flowers would be picked out. Uh, you know, veils would be bought. All of these things would end up taking place. Bridesmaid, groomsmen, best men. All of that would be... All of those people would be assigned and all that sort of thing. And the closer that we got to the day, the more the signs would increase in frequency and intensity. It's the same thing that happens when we're driving from Miami to Disney World. Has anybody ever made the drive from Miami to Disney World? Oh, look at that. Just about all of us. Now, if we would really split the crowd between those of us that are like really serious and take the turnpike and then those who are cheap and take 95, but we'll do that in some other time. Um, but here's what happens is that... Have you noticed that when you're driving up there, you, you only see like maybe you're driving through, you're going through Broward County and you see like one sign for Disney World. Then you start, you know, you're like maybe 150 miles. You see another sign. Then you start getting closer. You get like two miles from Disney World and they own every billboard. And it's like sign, 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 sign. What is Universal? Never heard of it. Sign, sign, sign. They own everything up there. And the same thing it was what happens when it comes to understanding Revelation and understanding the idea of the second coming and the revealing of Jesus. As we get closer, the signs increase in frequency and intensity. That's why he says the things must shortly take place. When the signs begin, they're going to increase in frequency and intensity. And if you and I can understand the times in which we're living, and we're going to talk a whole lot about that in the coming weeks. But if we will understand the times in which we're living, you know what we're going to find? We're going to find that the signs even now are increasing in frequency and in intensity. And that's part of what's so amazing about this book is that the things that John wrote about were impossible to have taken place in his generation. In fact, they were impossible to have taken place until the generation that you and I are living in right now. But it's also why we can have peace. 
And that's why John gives the common greeting in verse 4 when he says, Grace to you and peace. Now, grace would be the Greek greeting, and peace, shalom, would have been the Hebrew greeting. But it's also a promise to us. It's a promise that when I realize what it is that God is doing, and I can understand that these things are shortly going to take place, listen, I have peace that comes from trusting God even in the midst of all the craziness that can go on. You see, think about what Jesus said. He said, these things I've spoken to you, that you and me may have peace. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so we have, we experience tribulation, lowercase t. But even as we go through the book of Revelation and experience the uppercase t, the great tribulation, as those people experience, what we're going to find out is this. God is well aware of what's going to happen. God is well aware of how long it's going to endure. God is well aware of what he's going to allow and not going to allow. And the important thing for us is this, is that no matter how bad it gets in your life and in mine, we can recognize that God is well aware of what's going on and that God has a plan that he's putting in place to act. It's also a reminder to me that no matter how bad it gets, here's the thing. You and I, if if you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. It doesn't matter how bad it gets here. Listen, we're going to a place where there is no sorrow, there is no crying, there are no tears, there there is no death. And so we have that promise that no matter how crazy it gets, it gives me this opportunity to focus and live for eternity. To live in light of eternity because if I focus on the here and now, I'm going to be depressed. But if I can focus on where it is that I'm going and where I'm ultimately headed and live for eternity, listen, I can live a life that's blessed. John goes on in verse 5, and here's what he says. This is a, an amazing passage. In Revelation 1, he says, he says that, you know, greetings from God the Father, from the seven spirits, or from the Holy Spirit. And he says this in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, who has made us kings and priests, to his, his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, if the first thing we noted is that God is revealing the path to blessing, here's the second thing God is revealing. God is revealing the person of Jesus. He's revealing the person of Jesus. And the way he does that right from the get-go is by giving us these seven names. And let me kind of illustrate why he does it this way. Um, I myself go by several names, and I mostly do that so the FBI doesn't find me. Um, but no, I, I go by several names. You guys know me as Pastor Bob. My daughter calls me Papi. My family calls me Robert. My parents call me Robertico. And my wife calls me Babe, uh, just because I'm a babe, apparently. Um, but, you know, but here's the thing is that each of those names reveals something about me and reveals something about the kind of relationship that I have with the person who calls me that name. Although this week was interesting because um, my wife and I were having a conversation and my daughter was tapping my leg. And so she's just kind of tapping me on the leg saying, Poppy, Poppy. I said, hold on, Mama. Poppy, Poppy. And then she starts going, Robert, Robert, Robert. And then in final desperation, she goes, babe, babe, babe. You know, and, and uh, it was slightly awkward. Um, But these, what we're going to look at quickly are these seven titles that John gives in rapid succession of who Jesus is. And he gives us these seven titles to reveal something to us about him. 
And the, the first one is this, what we read in verse 5, he says, number one, that, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The faithful witness. In fact, the Greek word for uh, witness is the word marturos, where we get our word, the, faith, uh, the, the word martyr. So we say the faithful martyr. That Jesus came, in, came to earth to reveal who God is. Came to reveal who God is, to die for the sins of mankind. And what is a witness? A witness is someone who says what they have seen. But he reveals to us who God is. That's why in John chapter 14, it says this. It says, Philip, who's one of Jesus' disciples, he asks, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? You see, we are also called to be witnesses of the person of Jesus. And what does that mean? It means that we're simply to share what God has done in, in your life and in mine. What has God done in your life? And as you do, you, you explain that. You become this faithful witness, even as Jesus was a faithful witness of who the Father is. In fact, in uh, Acts chapter 1, it would say, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The second is this, that Jesus is not just a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, firstborn from the dead, what does that mean? Um, the phrase is one that's used to speak of priority, not necessarily chronology. We use that term. We talk about the first lady, right? The first lady doesn't mean that she was the first woman ever born, because that's not really the case. So we, we use it in terms of priority. It's a designation that we as a nation give her. And so, so what does that mean? It means that of people who have risen from the dead, who have gone from this life to the next, that Jesus is the most important one. The third name that we're given is that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. The ruler over the kings of the earth. When Jesus returns, it says this. It's in your notes in Revelation 19.16. It says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It says, number four, him who loved us. This is speaking of a specific moment. It's speaking of the cross. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter five, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number five, it says that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. What does that mean? It refers to how it is that we're forgiven through the work that Jesus did on the cross. That's how you and I are forgiven because of what Jesus did in his first coming. It says in 1 John chapter 1, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Then it says this, number six, that he's made us to be kings and priests to his God and Father. You ever thought about that? You see, you may not look like a king now, but you will. Because what the Bible says is that when Jesus returns, he's going to rule and reign over the earth. And you and I, who are believers, are going to have the opportunity to rule and reign with him. Now, I'm telling you, I've prayed already and asked God. I just said, God, I just want to oversee the area of Hawaii. That's why I want that to be my area of oversight, so don't even bother praying, because I've already got that, area, that covered. So some of you may want to oversee Hialeah. You can, if you want to do that, you can. I'm sure 49th Street will need several people overseeing it. 
Uh, <laughs> but then we have this. But by the way, that's, uh, that's why in 2 Timothy, which we just studied, it says this, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So we have that promise that we're going to rule and reign with him when Jesus returns. And then number seven, he says he is the alpha and the omega. And we'll see that in verse seven in just a moment. But it simply means this, that he is the beginning and the end. He's everything. And in verse seven, as we continue, here's here's what it says. And he says, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, if you pause there and give me your attentions, we've been looking here. We see that God's revealing the path of blessing. He's revealing the person of Jesus. But God is revealing, lastly, the power of God. He's revealing the power of God to us. Listen, there was a time, this is so amazing to me, there was a time when an event would happen and it would take years for there to be an understanding that this event took place. Even some of the most, some, some of the greatest events in history would take a long time for, for the news to get out. I mean, think about when the Titanic sank, it took almost a week for people to hear that, that, that this boat that was considered indestructible had sank. I mean, now some idiot takes a, sh- a shower on YouTube or, you know, he's singing and he puts it up on YouTube and the whole world watches, right? In fact, there's stuff on, uh, that you find out. It's like, why do I even know that this happened? In fact, just I, I'm going to show you something in just a second. This got millions of views on YouTube. Millions. All right. Check this out. All right, that's good. That's good. Thank you. I can tell as much as I can take. Apparently, there was a church that was like, you know, we're going to do something to reach the young people. And so they did that presentation. And here's what you would want to happen. A presentation like that would go on and they would say, let's make sure no one ever hears of this. Well, someone that we're very thankful for taped it for us. And uh, now millions of people have found out about this, this ridiculous video. And, and, and it's just amazing to me. I mean, so it's like not even things we want to know, things people we don't even necessarily want to know. So we're living in, the, in, in a world right now where nothing happens without people finding out about it. When John was writing, this, writing the book of Revelation, that was not possible. I mean, th- th- that was not an event that was going to take place. Listen, the thing that's amazing for us is that no one is going to miss. The fact that Jesus comes back, he says that every eye is going to see him, whether it's technology or whether it's not, or whether it's just the sheer power of God. When God returns and wipes out his enemies and sets up his rule and reign and takes possession of planet Earth once again, there's going to be something. There's going to be not one person that doesn't hear about it, not one person that doesn't see it, not one person that doesn't get it, that everybody is going to know. And the thing that we have to understand is that everything in history is leading up to this moment. Everything that's going to take place is going to lead up to this moment of when Jesus comes back. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul would write this in Romans chapter 13. He would say, and do this, understand the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And so the question is, the question for all of us to answer is, are we ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? I mean, is the thought of Jesus coming back something that fills you with fear or fills you with joy? I mean, because if, if the idea of Jesus returning is filling you with fear, it may be indicative of what's happening in your life spiritually and where you are with God. And that's why it's so important for us that maybe if we haven't settled the issue of eternity with God and we haven't settled the issue of eternity in our hearts, that maybe now is the time. Jesus came in his first coming and died for us and rose again from the dead so that we would not have to spend an eternity separated from God. And so he came into the world to save people, save people like you and save people like me. And what we can think is that, no, I'm all right. I'm all right because I believe in God. I believe that there's a God out there and that must mean something. Or I'm okay because I consider myself a Christian because my parents baptized me and then I, you know, did, you know, first communion and all that. So that's got to mean something. What that probably means is that your parents had some faith, but it still hasn't spoken very much about our individual faith. You see, here's what the Bible says. It says that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. We'll be saved because we're, if, if we're not saved, then we're lost. And that's really the difference. So you, what happens is, is that when a person has been saved by Jesus, they experience God's forgiveness and they experience the life that God has for them. When we're lost, we're, don't, we live as though we don't have any knowledge or understanding of who God is at all. And so we're just kind of walking and going in our own way. And so what takes place? Well, we have to ask the question... As opposed to looking at the past saying, well, I was this or this happened to me or I was baptized when I was a kid. The question is this. Can we answer something in the present that says, are we ready for his return? Are we ready for Jesus to come back? Not some past moment, but say, you know what? I've asked Jesus to forgive me. I know God. And because I know God, because of what Jesus did, because I've received his forgiveness... Not something that I earned, but something that he gives me freely. Now I have the opportunity to spend eternity with him in his kingdom. Because that's what he did. Jesus died for you and died for me because he wants you and I to spend eternity with him. In the kingdom and the place that he's provided for us. But he also wants to give us an abundant life right now. So if you've never made that decision, can I just encourage you to make it? And that being the most important decision that you've ever made in your life. To ask Jesus to come into your life, to ask Jesus to forgive you. So that the idea of his return isn't something that fills you with fear, but something that fills you with faith, something that fills you with hope. Because you know that things are right between you and God. Listen, if that's, if that's where you are this morning and you say, you know what, I, I want to make that decision. And here's what I want to do as we close. I simply want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you um, to simply repeat a prayer. And it has really not much to do with my words, but it has everything to do with your heart and the condition of your heart. And maybe the words that I 
have you repeat have more to do with words that maybe you can't, I don't know exactly how to say it, but it's what your heart has been feeling and desiring to say. So let's pray together. And Lord, we do want to thank you for your goodness, for your love. We thank you for the fact that your son is coming back. And so we pray that you would work in us, that you would fill us with hope, with faith that the signs are all around us to what's taking place. And God, for those of us that are here that maybe haven't made that decision and things are not right between some of us and you, God, maybe this moment would be the one where things are made right. Not because of what we've done, but because what your son has done when he died for us and gave us an open invitation to come to you. And listen, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, maybe as I was speaking, that was you. And you're in a place where you're saying, you know what? Um, I want to ask Jesus to forgive me. I want to essentially be become a Christian. I'm not relying on what happened in the past. I'm not relying on my parents' faith or lack of faith, but I have faith now. And I'm asking Jesus to come into my life. If that's you and you're ready, I'm going to ask that you repeat this prayer. I'm going to ask that you repeat it out loud because the Bible says when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, the Bible says you'll be saved. So if you're ready, say, Dear God, I open my heart and I invite you inside. I ask that you forgive me of all that I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. God, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow you starting today. In Jesus' name, amen.